And so our passage today is found in James chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee for you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I believe I've met most of you, but uh, if, if we haven't become acquainted yet, my name is Ted, and uh, I grew up in the 80s, and when I was a kid, I wasn't Ted, I was Teddy. Please don't try calling me Teddy now, that won't go well. But uh, I was Teddy as I was growing up, and, and I grew up in the 80s. Now, when you grew up in the 1980s with a name like Teddy, Something immediately triggered in everyone's mind as soon as they met you. That is because the number one selling toy in 1985 and in 1986, and which was deeply embedded into pop culture at the time, was this toy, Teddy Ruxpin. And every single time I met someone and introduced myself, they would say, oh, Teddy Ruxpin. And then they would ask me a question. And some of you who grew up in the 80s know the question that they would ask. They would say, oh, Teddy Ruxpin, can you and I be friends? You see, Teddy Ruxpin, was, he was really just a cassette, ta cassette, tape, cassette tape player wrapped in a teddy bear. And he had creepy eyes that moved side to side and his mouth opened. And he was like this talking teddy bear. And, and the beginning of every tape that you would put into his back always began with, Hi, I'm Teddy Ruxpin. Can you and I be friends? And everyone that I talked to they acted as though they thought of it for the first time, like as if I had never heard it. I sort of always had to go through this thing. Yeah, Teddy Ruxpin, can you and I uh, be friends? See, Teddy Ruxpin invented the friend request two decades before Facebook. This invitation to friendship. A wise person once said, show me your friends and I will show you your future. Kids, you might be wondering why your parents are so concerned about who you're hanging out with and who you talk to and who you sit with at lunch and who you play with on the street. Your friends are concerned, or sorry, your parents are concerned about your friends because they're concerned about 
your future. Today's message is all about uh, defining our friendships, making clear our allegiances. Today's message is called Wisdom About the World. Wisdom About the World. Last week, we looked at, we looked at wisdom, the, the wisdom that comes from above and the wisdom that comes from the world. And now we're going to be looking at friendship that comes from God versus friendship that comes from the world. Now, James had already uh, talked about the world in this letter. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, when he talked about caring for orphans and widows in their distress? He said, while remaining unstained from the world, there was this call to be separate. And then all throughout the Bible, I mean, this theme of the world and the influence of the world comes up all over the place. I mean, Matthew 13, verse 22, in the parable of the sower, Jesus said, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But it says, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Romans 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then Jesus famously prayed for his disciples and the prayer applies to us as well. John 17, verse 15 and 16. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're warned time and time again about how we are to relate to the world. You know, when, when you're teaching the Bible, and I've been going through with a number of our, our, our best and brightest Bible teachers here at Hope Church, we've all been taking a course together at Heritage Seminary online, and part of the process of developing uh, a sermon or a, or a Bible lesson is to come up with something called the big idea. Think about like writing a high school essay. It's like the thesis statement. That when you're teaching the Bible, a really effective way to, to teach is to summarize the whole passage that you're teaching in one simple sentence. And thankfully, James has already done it for us here. If you look down at verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There it is. There's the big idea for today. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world will make themselves an enemy of God. Do you remember what it was like? I mean, it's so nice that we are able to welcome people to the church facility today, but do you remember what it was like when you could welcome people into your house, like friends would come over? Do you remember that? I can't wait till we can start doing that again. But, you know, it's, it's different when a friend comes to your house versus when a stranger or an acquaintance comes to your house, right? When a friend comes to your house... They're just welcome. I mean, they don't wait to be, to be welcomed in. They just they sort of open the door and they, they come right. Some of our friends just let themselves in, don't they? 
And a, a friend doesn't have to wait to be offered a drink or, or something to eat, although that's, that's polite, but they just go right to the fridge and, and grab something to eat or, because they're friends. They just feel at home. And here's the question that we're going after today when we think about being a friend of the world. Does the world feel at home in your life? Does the world and the world system and the ways of thinking and our culture, does it just feel at home? Does it just feel like there's no problem that everything about the world and the way the world does things is just feels completely at home in your life? Or does the world feel foreign in your life? And then the question is, do you feel at home in the world? Do you feel like there's, there's, there's no distance or difference that you are walking as a friend of this world. Now, if you don't know whether you're a friend of the world or not, James is going to help us out. He's going to really help us dig deep and, and take a look at our own lives to determine, am I living as a friend of the world or am I living as a friend of God? So he begins by reminding us, telling us to refuse friendship with the world. That's what the first five or six verses are about. So if you're taking notes today, you can jot this down. Refuse friendship with the world, and then ask yourself this first diagnostic question. Am I in constant conflict with other Christians? One of the ways to determine if you are living as a friend of the world is if your relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ are in constant conflict. Look at, look at verse one. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights? among you. The early church was filled, just like our church today. It's no different. There was, it was filled with conflict. It was filled with misunderstandings. It was filled with hurt feelings. It was filled with arguments. Here's the interesting thing. If you look back at what he had just said at the end of chapter 3, look at chapter 3, verse 18. He said, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He seems to be ending on this high note of peace and righteousness. And then the next verse says, so if we're supposed to be sowing peace, why is there so much fighting? Why are there so many quarrels? The language that James is using here, it doesn't really come through in our English Bibles, but these are the terms for armed military combat. This is warfare language. We're not talking about just, you know, an argument or, no, he's talking, he's like, why are you at war with one another. You see, conflict and conflict with other Christians is part of the Christian life. Sometimes we have this over-idealized understanding of what the early church was like. You know, it's like we didn't read anywhere past Acts chapter 2. You know, they were breaking bread in their homes and giving away their possessions and everything was just great. And that's what the whole early church was like. I mean, read Acts chapter 6. There was division across ethnic and cultural lines. Acts Look at Acts chapter 15. There was division over theology. Later on in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement over their relationship, their friendship with John Mark. Conflict among Christians is part of the Christian life. But it shouldn't be constant. It shouldn't be the norm. Are you the kind of person that no matter what relationships, whether it's at home with your family or in church or in small group or the ministry team, there's always drama? 
You're always offended or someone else is offended at you. You're not talking to this person. You can't look that person in the eye. You're, you're, uh, whether it's big blow-ups with angry words or whether it's, it's, it's passive-aggressive avoidance, one of the signs that we're living as friends of the world is if we're not living in right relationship with other believers. He says in verse 2 that you, you murder. Again, he's not being literal. He, when he says they're at war, they're not actually at war. They're not actually murdering one another. But he's, he's, he's reminding them, remember, James, this, this whole book is really just a collection of, of Bible study notes on the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's quoting his older half-brother Jesus all the time, time after time. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 21? He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. And then 1 John 3, verse 15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So John, or sorry, James here is, is saying that our disagreement, how we handle conflict. Now, conflict is to be expected, but to be in constant conflict with other believers shows that there's something wrong. All your closest friends might be Christians, but if you're always in conflict with other Christians, then you're living like more of a friend of the world than you are like a friend of God. So we know that conflict is to be expected. And kids, I know you probably haven't had much time, you know, you haven't been going to Awana or attending Hope Kids, and so you might be like, well, I haven't really been around my Christian friends. Listen, if you live in a Christian family with Christian parents and Christian brothers and Christian sisters, how's that going? How's, the, how's your relationship with your, are you, is there constantly drama every time your parent asks you to do something? Are you being kind and generous in your interactions with your brothers and your sisters? Are you in conflict with other Christians? Because a lot of those family members that you live with, they're Christians. And this is serious. I mean, James is talking about war and murder, so I want all of us right now, young and old, to think about the most recent conflict you've been in. And then I want you just to really try to diagnose that conflict and, and get a sense of what was the problem? What was really going on in that conflict? Could have been something at home, could have been something with, with, a, you know, with a teacher, an online schooling, could have been with a neighbor, could have been with someone in your small group. What went wrong in that conflict? Now, if you're anything like me, your immediate response is, well, the problem was it was the other person. <laughs> right? How many of us thought, well, the, the problem was is that they didn't understand what I was saying. The problem was, was that they were being selfish. The problem, the problem was them. It was them. But James here, highlighting the symptom of these quarrels that we all find ourselves in, look back at verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Too often when we find ourselves in conflict, we, we immediately think it's the other person's problem or we don't look in the mirror and realize that when we have relational problems on the outside, it's most likely because there is an internal problem on 
the inside. So here's the second question we need to ask ourselves to determine whether or not we're living as friends of the world. The second question is this, am I losing the battle between the flesh and the spirit? Am I losing the battle between the flesh and the spirit? He says in verse one that there are these passions that are at war within us. So we have these wars with other Christians. Why? Because there's a war going on inside of us. Jesus said that out of our heart comes all kinds of evil things, evil things like murder and adultery, the kinds of things that James is talking about. He said that in Mark chapter 7. But he said in John 7 that whoever believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus promised a new heart. And if you place your faith in Jesus, you're given a new heart, a new identity. I am who you say I am. That's what we just sang about. This is, this is who we are in Christ. We have a new heart. But living inside of us, coexisting with our new heart and our new identity, we have old desires. We have old passions. Some translations call it the sinful nature. Sometimes it's translated passion. Sometimes it's translated lust or desire. There is a war going on inside each and every one of us. Conflict on the outside with others is caused by an ongoing conflict on the inside with us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We're all, listen, just as it's totally natural and normal for Christians to have conflict with other Christians, it's also totally natural and normal for Christians to have a conflict within themselves. We are continually fighting an internal battle. The spirit inside of us, the new heart inside of us, is continually under attack and at war from the passions and lusts that dwell inside of us as well. J.C. Ryle summed it up uh, in this way. Take a look at this quote. He said, A true Christian is one who, not, who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as his peace. We are all fighting this battle. Now, if we are going to be living as friends of the world, then we will automatically be losing this battle between flesh and spirit. Why? Because the world is continually sending the same message. Follow your desires. Do what you want to do. Be authentic to yourself. Follow your passions. I mean, from car commercials to cookie commercials, from, from kindergarten uh, uh, education to PhD uh, dissertations. It's the same message. Listen to what's inside of you. Now, this is such a confusing message because not only for the Christian do we have this war that's going on inside of us between our new identity and the spirit and these desires, but, but even for the non-Christian, these desires, they're so often in conflict, aren't they? I mean, we, we talk about this world. The world is always saying, just follow your desires. Do what you want to do. Follow your passion. Be authentic. Be true to yourself. 
But there's no clarity given about which part of yourself you're supposed to be true to and which desires you're supposed to listen to. I mean, the month of June, Pride Month, there, there's a huge emphasis on following sexual desires. Well, are we supposed to follow every sexual desire that comes across our mind or wells up? Every single one? Is, what, should you be true to yourself on every single desire? That, how do you decide which one is right? I mean, you, apart from, from, from something like, like sexuality, just think about normal desires. You might have a desire to get good grades, to graduate grade 12, to get into a good college. You might have that desire. You also might have a desire to play video games for eight hours straight. Both of those desires exist. Which one are you supposed to listen to? You might desire to exercise and be healthy and hit the gym and get your cardio going, go for runs. You also might have a desire to crush 12 sprinkled donuts. Which desire are you supposed to listen to? This is what the world does not clarify. It simply says, follow your desires. Be true to yourself. Which self? Which desire? But a telltale sign that we have bought into our world, the man-centered, desire-focused culture, a way to, to show that we are living as friends in this world is if we are listening to our desires rather than listening to the Spirit. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. He says, you covet, so you fight and you quarrel. This is in verse 2. That word covet is translated in chapter 3, verse 14, and 3, verse 16, bitter jealousy. It's the, the same root word. He goes on in verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Again, if you're listening to the world, the world says, figure it out yourself. Look on the inside. God's word says, pray and depend on God. But he says, you do not have because you do not ask. If you're living according to the world and following the desires of your flesh, there's no need to pray. So prayerlessness is a telltale sign. Then he goes on in verse 3, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So here's the third question we got to ask ourselves. Am I praying self-oriented prayers? He's talking about asking and receiving. You, you, you ask, but you do not receive. What Jesus said in Matthew 7 is not actually, not actually happening in your life. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. But here in James, he's saying, you ask, but you don't receive. Here's why, because you ask wrongly. Remember, also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us how to pray. How, how's the Lord prayer, pray, how does the Lord's prayer Go, I'm not going to put it on the screen. Say it with me. Our Father in heaven, and what's the first request? Hallowed be your name. Come on, help me out here. The next command is, your kingdom come and your will be done. Prayer is not about us trying to convince God to follow our desires. Prayer is about us trying to follow God's desires. It's about God. Your name be hallowed. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not my kingdom come and my will be done. And so, loved ones, we have to be really careful to make sure 
that when we are listening to preachers or when we're listening to sermons, we, there's a lot of people on the internet and on television and they say they are Christians, they seem like they are friends of God, they seem to be teaching the word of God, but they are in fact friends of the world. Because they teach that prayer is some sort of cosmic transaction where we get leverage called faith and if we have enough faith, that basically forces God to give us what we want. Just like James says here, we ask wrongly to spend it on our desires. And we, we see these preachers living these lavish lifestyles and saying how God gave them as an answer to prayer because they had enough faith. Things like jetliners and, and fancy cars and, and big mansions. That's not worshiping God. That's worshiping stuff. That's using God as a means to an end. It's about building your own kingdom, not building God's. We need to be on the lookout for teachers like that. Then he says in verse 4, he says, You adulterous people. You adulterous people. James here is using Old Testament language. This is how the Old Testament prophets spoke to the people of Israel when they started worshiping idols and turned away from God. He used the language of marital infidelity. A husband cheating on his wife or a wife being unfaithful to her husband. We don't have time to go through all of the examples. The, the whole book of Hosea, Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel 23, chronicle in detail, flesh out this, this, this metaphor of marital unfaithfulness. Let me just share one verse with you because it succinctly describes it. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 20. God says, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So James here, he uses the language of warfare. Now he's using the, the and, and murder. Now he's using the language of adultery. I mean, he's just knocking off the Ten Commandments here. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And what is at its source? Now we get to the thesis statement. Now we get to the big idea, the core truth of this text. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to be a friend of the world? Are you going to choose to be a friend of the Lord? Then in verse 5, he says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So James here is quoting the Bible, the only challenge here for people who are studying the Bible and scholars who translate the Bible is we can't find a verse that says that anywhere in the Old Testament or really anywhere, the Apocrypha or anything. And so what, what we believe James is doing here is he's just giving a summary statement. You know, we might say, you know, the Bible says God loves us unconditionally. Well, is there a, is there a, a chapter and verse that we can look to and quote that says God loves us unconditionally. No, there isn't, but we can look at the theme. We can look at the storyline of Scripture and see even though the people of God were repeatedly adulterous and repeatedly broke God's covenant, he continued to love them. James is doing the same thing here. He's summing up a biblical theme. What biblical theme is he summing up? So the ESV reads... He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. If you're not reading the ESV, it might seem to say something completely different. 
Let me try to break this uh, down for you just as best that I can. Up above in that orange box, that is, the, that is the best sort of literal translation that I can produce for you. What we have in the actual Greek text is jealously he yearns, that's really one word, the spirit he made to dwell, that's, that's all one word as well. But we don't know who, the, who is the he. Is the he the spirit or is the he the father? And, and what, is it talking about the Holy Spirit or is it just talking about the general spirit of the world in which we live? So the New International Version and the King James Version translated this way, the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. So the ones doing the envying, the ones who are jealous, according to the NIV and the King James, it's us. That the human spirit is a jealous spirit, that we're sinful and again, when we're interpreting the Bible, when we're translating the Bible, context is king, right? When someone says something or quotes us out of context, we say, well, you got to put what I said in context. If you want to know what someone meant, you got to understand the context. Well, in the context, in chapter 3, verse 14 and verse 16, he had, he had told the people that they were guilty of bitter jealousy and envy. So it fits the context to say, the spirit inside of every human being, not, this is not talking about the Holy Spirit, just how human beings are, is that we're, we're naturally jealous and we got to watch out for that. Now the ESV translates it a different way. It says, he, speaking about God, yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Again, both translations are legitimate. Both fit the context because... James had just said that we had committed spiritual adultery. If a, if a spouse finds out that the person that they've made a covenant relationship with, with has broken that covenant and been unfaithful, it's only natural and right for them to be jealous, right? And so the ESV translates it that God is the one who is jealous. You think, well, isn't that sinful? Isn't it wrong for God to, to, to be? No, listen, if you translate it the NIV or the King James way, it is wrong. It's wrong for us to be jealous, but there's a different kind of jealousy that God can have. It is right for a spouse to be jealous for, a, for their spouse, to want exclusive covenant love with them. Just like God said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 and 5, this is in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now for me personally, you can disagree with me, there isn't a whole lot on the line because it is true that human beings are naturally jealous and it is true that God is a jealous God. For me, the immediate context, as James is talking about adultery, it makes sense to think that God is the jealous God, that he is jealous over every breath that we breathe. He wants it to be devoted to him. You might, you might uh, look at it in a different way, but both are, are true. So James at this point, he's coming down pretty hard. He's saying, why are there quarrels? You know why there are quarrels? Because there's passions inside of you and you're compromised. You're living as friends of the world. You're committing spiritual adultery. Wake up and follow the Bible. And what you expect him to say next and what many of us would say next would be something like, get it together. What is wrong with you? Try harder. Get serious. 
But that's why what comes next is so shocking and so surprising. Because look at what he says in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Just stop for a moment. Just, just receive that truth. Whatever this last week has been for you, whatever this last year or so has been for you, if you've been sort of listening to this message so far, reading this passage and just being, I am, I've been living like a friend of the world. I, I, I have, I've been following the passions of my flesh. I haven't been trying to follow God. I've totally, I've totally bought, I, I've committed a, a spiritual adultery. I've betrayed God. What you need to hear, what James says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what you need to hear today is that God gives more grace. That God's capacity to be gracious to us far exceeds our capacity to be sinful against him. He gives more grace. James here gives us a really important lesson in, in preaching, in pastoring, in parenting, in friendships of any kind. Guilt may seem like a good motivator in the short term. You make someone feel bad, you give a list of things they've done wrong, you tell them to try harder. Guilt might, might immediately produce a little bit of fruit in someone's life, but listen, nothing transforms a life like grace. Grace doesn't ignore the guilt. Grace doesn't ignore shortcomings. I mean, James made it pretty clear here in the first five verses. But the best way to motivate people is not by grace, not by guilt, but by grace. And it's by grace, the fact that God gives, not just grace, God gives more grace. More grace, abundant grace. And that's what encourages us as we seek to refuse the friendship with the world to change gears now and pursue friendship with the Lord. What do we do now? Where do we go from here? If, if God is gracious, how then should we respond? We've been told in the first five verses that God is jealous, and because of that, we should refuse friendship with the world. Now we're being told that God is gracious, and because of that, we should pursue friendship with him. In verse six, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This time, he is actually quoting a verse in the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, verse 34. It's all over the Bible, that theme. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James, in encouraging the people to pursue friendship with him, gives a, a 10 or so different commands. They just come at, come at us like staccato styles, like he's firing from a machine gun. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. I'm just going to summarize for us in three simple headings, three questions that I want us to ask ourselves. The first one is this, am I repenting? Am I repenting? To repent simply means to turn. It's a military term. Soldiers are marching in one direction, and then the, the general gives an instruction to either halt or to turn about face and to start marching in another direction. That is what repentance is. And the verses that follow in verses 7 through 9 paint a beautiful picture of what repentance looks like without ever using the word 
repentance. He begins with the word submit. Submit. When a soldier is is marching in one direction and the general announces that they need to turn, they are submitting to the will. They are saying, your will be done. They're following what the general says. And if we are going to live in friendship with God in a right relationship with him, we need to start saying again, not my will be done, but thy will be done. To submit can also mean to surrender. Maybe we're not marching in the army. Maybe we're fighting against God. But realizing that he is too strong. We've been proud. He's been opposed to us. And so we humble ourselves and raise the white flag. So it begins by submitting to the Lord. Halfway through verse 7, it says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We've been marching in one direction. We've been marching following the ways of this world and the flesh and the devil. And we resist the devil. We turn away from him. And then it says, draw near to God. Repenting is not just turning from our sin. That's only half of it. It's turning from our sin and turning towards God. And I love that promise. When we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. And when we draw near to God in humility, when we get his word open, when we start to pray to him, when we start to sing to him, loved ones, when we draw near, he draws near to us. Remember the prodigal son who was off living as a friend of the world and he squandered everything. And the father saw him from a long way off. The the son was trying to draw near to the father, wasn't he? Did the father wait till he got all the way onto the property and onto the porch? No, no. As soon as that son took that initial step to draw near, the father ran to him. Loved ones, when we turn and draw near to God, he has promised that he will draw near to us. He goes on in that that same verse, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Your hands represents your actions. Stop doing what you shouldn't be doing. And then purify your hearts refers to our motives, the things happening on the inside. Again, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purify your hearts. Then he says, you double-minded. Going all the way back to James chapter 1, verse 8. Remember the double-minded man who's tossed to and fro by the sea? James says, you can't be double-minded. You can't think that you can be a friend with the world and a friend with God. To be a friend with the world makes you an enemy of God. Stop being double-minded. Then he says in verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, you might read this and think, okay, well, we did, you know, that singing and clapping we were doing earlier, we got to knock that off. We got to be done with that because we're supposed to weep and mourn. Being a Christian is all about being stern and serious and weeping over our sin. Listen, loved ones, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's always part of a process. Again, the Sermon on the Mount tells us, blessed are those who mourn, Matthew 5, 3, for they shall be, sorry, Matthew 5, 4, for they shall be comforted. The, the, the mourning, the weeping, it's part of the Christian life, being serious about our sin. James isn't messing around here. He's using words like war and enemies and adultery. These are serious things. 
We need to take them seriously. But when we mourn, we will be comforted. Just like what he says next, humble yourselves before the Lord in verse 10 and he will exalt you. So when you're exalted, that's when we celebrate. The world says, if we live as friends of the world, we try to exalt ourselves. That's going nowhere fast. But God's word says, if we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. That leads to the next diagnostic question. Am I humbling myself? Am I humbling myself? Am I trying to live on my own, do things my own way? Do I look down on other people? Do I think that I'm better and that I don't need any help? James, stop that and humble yourself. Luke chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus tells this story, this embarrassing, awkward story of someone who goes and sits at the seat of honor and and they thought that's where they belonged and then there's this awkward moment where the host of the meal says, no, you're actually not supposed to sit there. And then because they chose to sit in the seat of honor, There's no other seats left. They had to go and sit way at the back. And then Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself, everyone who tries to put themselves in the seat of honor will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. When we're trying to find a seat for ourselves, we don't try to find the seat of honor. We try to sit back and humble ourselves. 1 Peter 5, 6 says the same thing. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Notice how the word humble and exalt is used in Luke 14. It's used in 1 Peter 5. It's used here in James 4, 10. When we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. And then lastly, look at what he says in verse 10. He says, do not speak evil. I mean, James can't go a paragraph without talking about the tongue. Have you noticed that? Chapter uh, 1, verse 10, he said that it's the sign of true maturity if you're able to control your tongue. Uh, Chapter 1, verse uh, 26, that if a person can't control their tongue, then their religion is worthless. All of chapter 3, it's the bit in the horse's mouth. It's the rudder in the boat. It's the fire that sets the forest ablaze. He's always talking about the tongue. And he knows that they've been quarreling with one another. He knows they're not actually murdering and at war with each other. What they're doing, the kinds of fights that they're having are a war of words. So he brings it full circle. He told them not to quarrel. He got down to the sim- he got down past the symptoms, gave the diagnosis. It's because of the passions welling up inside of you. It's because you're living as friends of the world. And now he says, now that we've dealt with the core issue, now that we've dealt with the cause, let's get back to dealing with the symptoms. Here's how we should treat one another. Here's the last question we have to ask ourselves. Am I judging other Christians? Am I judging other Christians? You know, I, I don't know about you. I, I, I mentioned how conflict among Christians is, is just natural. It's to be expected. But, I mean, is it not true that the last 12 to 18 months, we've had ample opportunity for conflict? Like, on multiple issues and multiple layers in our world and in our church. And one of the dangers is when, because of the passions inside of us, we assume the problem is with the other person. They're not as smart as us, or they're not as spiritual as us, or they're not as loving as us, or they're not as committed to the truth as us. And we start to judge other people who might have come to different conclusions based on looking at the same data that that we're looking at. And we start speaking with certainty 
about things that the Bible doesn't speak about. We need to be really careful about the level of certainty we speak about things. We can be very certain about the gospel. We can be very certain about what God's word says, but there's all kinds of things in the world that Christians are having conflict about that we can't have certainty about because it's not revealed in scripture. So the question we gotta ask ourselves is, am I judging others? Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Notice how, he re- notice how he repeats the word brother three times. He's like, we're family, guys. Don't speak evil against your brothers and sisters. Don't judge your brothers and sisters. God is our Father. Christ the Son died for us. We've been set free from judgment. The, the only judgment that matters. Why would we turn around and judge our fellow brothers and sisters? He warned us about Judging, Jesus warned us about judging again. Guess where? The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 1, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus warned about judgment. He says, when you speak evil, it's right there in verse 11. When you speak evil, And judge your brother, you're speaking evil and judging the law. That that may not come across quite clearly as you read it there in your Bible. So let me just show it to you in in an equation here. Let me just show you this. Speaking evil and judging my brother equals, it's right there in verse 11, equals speaking evil and judging the law. First off, it's breaking the law. Because we're not supposed to judge one another. We're not supposed to show partiality to one another. We're not supposed to be haughty or arrogant or think that we're better than other people. That's breaking the law. So when we do that, we speak against the law. And we, rather than letting the law judge us, we put ourselves, we should always be under the Bible. Not the Bible under us and people down below us. And we use the Bible as a weapon to judge other people people. That's just flat out wrong. He says, when you're doing this, look at verse 11. He keeps repeating all of these themes he's mentioned earlier. He says, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law. You're like that person that looks in the mirror and forgets what they look like, that ridiculous illustration from James chapter 1. He says, you got to be a doer of the law. Stop judging other people. You're missing the point. And then he says in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Loved ones, the greatest commandment is not to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to judge your neighbor. It's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor. James says, who who are you? Excuse me, who are you? Who made you judge? There is only one judge, he says. And notice what it says. He says, There is one judge, there is one lawgiver, it says, who is able to save and to destroy. Underline that in verse 12. He is able to save and to destroy. God is the ultimate judge. He knows all things. We only judge with limited information. God is omniscient. He knows everything. And loved ones, he looks at our lives with perfect omniscient knowledge. 
And he has a decision. Is he going to save or is he going to destroy? We've got to ask ourselves, what did God choose for us? He chose to save. Like it says in verse 6, he gives more grace. He gave his son to suffer and die, to bear the judgment that all of us deserve. So who are you? Who am I? Who are we to judge? When there's only one judge, he had a choice to save or to destroy, and he chose to save. He chose grace. So when we find ourselves in a situation of whether or not we should judge someone or be gracious to someone, we need to play the tape back and remember that the true judge chose not to destroy, but chose to save. He chose to show grace, and therefore, we should show grace to one another. Otherwise, we're just living, loved ones. We're living as friends of this world. You look at this world. You look at the judgment and the accusations and the vitriol that's just all over our world right now. The sense of arrogance and self-righteousness and self-superiority. It's all over. We can't live like that, loved ones. We need to be people of grace. We need to be people who forgive because we know we've been forgiven. There's one judge, and he had a choice to save or to destroy, and he chose to save. He chose grace. We need to choose grace as well. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, this has been a lot for us to receive today. I pray that you would help us to live it, to apply it, to delight in it. God, protect us. Lead us not into temptation, God. Protect us from the passions inside of us. Protect us from the lure of the culture all around us. Lord, we pray that as we draw near to you, that you would draw near to us. Lord, we love you and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.